Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This weekend's extra episode is a conversation between me and the broadcaster, author, and I quote, conscience of liberal Britain, James O'Brien. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. This conversation with James was recorded a few days ago. It's part of the Cambridge Literary Festival. And we are talking to start with about James's new book, How Not to Be Wrong, which is a follow up to the best selling How to Be Right. But we talk about a lot more than that, everything from Brexit to therapy. It's a fascinating book. And it starts with the story of your therapy. Let's be frank about this. And it reminded me of something that Howard Stern said. So for people who aren't familiar with the work of Howard Stern, he's I think he's what used to be called a shock jock. Do people still yeah. say shock jock or not? Uh, they, I they do on Twitter. I don't know whether they're, they're on Twitter. Like anyway, it. Howard Stern is now no longer a shock jock because he's matured like you into a sensitive, insightful <laughs> political interviewer. But um, he used to have Donald Trump on his show back in the day in, in New York when Trump was a ghastly New York real estate mogul. And Howard Stern would goad him into saying outrageous things about how much he fancied Ivanka and stuff like that. And then when he became president, Howard Stern was asked, don't you want to interview him now? And he said, no, because I've just been through therapy. And frankly, until Trump has therapy, I can't bear to speak to that man. Um, so do you feel that when you look at, I mean, after your experiences in therapy, do you look at wow. politicians and think like Howard Stern does until they've had therapy? I just can't, I can't I did talk not to know that. that is yeah, he did say that. Howard Stern has talked a lot about his therapy. I, I will, well, that, that specific instance, I mean, I, I can't, yes, I kind of agree with that, although I've never heard it before. I, I, I think it's more a case of it would be almost impossible to get to the nub of the truth with somebody like Donald Trump or, or for my money, with somebody like Boris Johnson, mm -hmm. unless they've had a look at the, the deeply rooted reasons why they have this psychological inability to admit ever to being wrong or being vulnerable. It's not confined to, to the two... Um, most powerful men in the English-speaking world for, for another couple of weeks, but it, it seems it seems relevant. Doesn't they do it? seem poster children, as it were, for that. <laughs> yes, but that's really. I shall dig that out afterwards because I, I, I like Howard Stern and I love the way that he goes on journeys. You know, the, the idea that I think the first line of my book is there's no point having a mind if you never change it. And mm. yet, the more the further away I get from having written that first line, the more the more it actually resonates because of people like Trump. Even now, I won the election. This is an almost perfect distillation of, of everything that happens if you're psychologically incapable of admitting wrongness and weakness. So the, there was, you know, it's it's slightly past this moment when the Tom Bauer book about Boris Johnson came out. There was a lot of talk about yes. his childhood. His father, you know, Stanley Johnson does not. I haven't read the book, I should say, I've just read that. But Stanley Johnson doesn't come out of his it well, and and you know, a, a, an attempt to understand Johnson in terms of the fears, the abandonment he might have felt as a child. So when you read that, did you what what was your feeling? Sympathy, um, a desire, if only Johnson himself would be <laughs> facing up to this because it was being said on his behalf. Well, that's the thing. So my my, my personal case isn't isn't identical because I had an incredibly loving home life. And in some ways that added to my difficulties as an adult, because I had to be both of those people, the person who felt completely emotionally secure and, and unconditional love has been in my life since um, before I can remember. And, and, and then you go away to these odd schools which deliver amazing benefits. Of course they do, mm. um, as we both know. But equally, they do involve a, a, a weird combination of both abandonment and denial of abandonment because you're conscious of the privilege you're conscious of the good fortune that you have to be in these places 
But at the same time, you often feel very, very low and lonely, and you have to deny that to yourself. So self-denial is not a phrase that you would associate with Boris Johnson in many contexts, is it? Given that his <laughs> appetites are so well-documented and indeed well-fed. Yeah. But denying pain, whether it's the pain of seeing your father behave abominably as a, as a child while still loving him, that, that involves self. He can't be what I see, if Tom Bauer's book is even half accurate, there's some stuff in there that no son should have to process or witness, particularly not as they love their mother. Um, and then coming to a school or getting into this environment where, where you have to deny even something as simple as sadness. So I am capable of feeling sorry for him up to the point where I remember what he's done to others. But in the context exclusively of what's been done to him, perhaps whether he realises it or not, yeah, it was a surprise by the time I got to chapter three or four to be thinking of, of, of him in those terms. Mm. But I think most, most show-offs who went to boarding schools prior to probably the 1990s do suffer similarly. So let's come on to what he's done to the rest of us a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, you have a line in the book where you say you had an anxiety going into therapy that it might sort of therapize out of you your, your sort of you know, professional skill set, which includes, you know, you need to be quite com combative, yeah. you need to be confident, uh, you know, you need to be argumentative. I mean, it's, it's part of what you do. And it, as you recount in the book, actually, you've developed a kind of broader set of skills coming out of this. But when you think about politicians, I mean, to go back to the sort of, you know, Trump needs therapy, um, there presumably would, or Johnson, a, a real anxiety that they, they might look, you've got to be a bastard at some level to be a politician, don't you? And that they, that the therapizing out of, you know, the skill set that they need would be a real fear for them, do you think? It's interesting that, isn't it? Because you, you, I mean, how many U-turns has Johnson undertaken now? And so, if he was able to admit that he'd done mm. wrong in the past, then the confidence we could have in his ability to lead us in the future would, I think, be enhanced. You, you can't be saying sorry for every single thing. You can't be overanalyzing yourself. I don't know that Keir Starmer is a bastard, and yet on the day that, that we record this, he's demonstrated more backbone or spine, perhaps, by refusing to reinstate Jeremy Corbyn in the Parliamentary Labour Party than you could argue Boris Johnson with his inability ever to admit a mistake has demonstrated in his in his entire political career. So my, my concern, once I realised therapy was working, I got worried that I might therapise myself out of a career. I, did, I didn't think it was going to work for a nanosecond when I was on the path to the therapist's door. But I think that it might be a bit pat this, David, but I think I'm going to bring... I'm going to bring gender into it because you look at the female leaders who've coped with coronavirus specifically better than almost any other leaders in the world. I mean, you have the obvious example of Jacinda Ardern, but then Merkel, Germany, in the context of Europe, has, has once again proved much more um, effective than anywhere else. And, and, I, and I think that women find it easier to be emotionally literate. And if you are emotionally literate, this is about background, not biology. If you are emotionally literate, then saying, actually, I got that wrong, but trust me, I'll get this right, would be, would be a lot easier to do. So I, I, I think our model of, of masculinity, when it meets politics, would see, I, mean, I think Trump subscribes to that never explain, never apologize yeah. modus operandi, which is essentially mafioso in its inception. I mean, it works if you're a mafia don, and I guess it works if you're a leader in, a, in an authoritarian or totalitarian state where you can control the news. And, and possibly it works during easy, peaceful, good times. But during times like this, you have to explain and you have to apologise. To be, to be talking about test and trace as being world beating and to be talking about we should be proud of what we've done, which he's done in the last two weeks, Johnson, as we have predicted the worst recession in Europe, the worst economic impact in Europe and the worst death toll, that's delusional. And, um, and I don't think there's any downside to being therapized out of that world. Yeah, with Trump, I, in, um, I think it was in Bob Woodward's book, there have been so many, you know, in each one, you just lose track of the jaw dropping moments. But I think it's in Bob Woodward's where he describes, so after the sort of grab them by the pussy yeah. tape, where, you know, a lot of people thought Trump is finished, and a lot of people in his camp thought he was finished. And that they, I think even Giuliani kind of helped draft an apology for him. Um, and he sort of got halfway through reading it out and he just stopped and said, I just, you know, I never, I just don't do this. Mm. 
Mm. Um, If I do this, I'm dead. The brand is dead. And of course, weirdly, he was right. You know, the terrifying thing about that reading in hindsight, this is two, three months before the election. Mm. And then, God damn it, he won that election. And he was right in a way. If he had apologized, Mm. he would have trashed the brand, the ghastly brand. And so there is that awful self-fulfilling, the ones who make it to the top never apologize, never explain. So what got them there? Yes, but, but it did in their cases. I mean, that, that's the whole yeah. point. But it's, it's and, and people aren't quite ready to admit this as completely in Johnson's case as they are in Trump's case because of the, you know, the, the Brexit being Banquo's ghost at the table on, on every political discussion about the United Kingdom. But if you have been propelled to power by dishonesty, or if dishonesty is a crucial part of your propulsion to power, whether it's, you know, lying about what, membership of the European Union means or lying about money for the NHS or lying about what our current freedoms involve with regard to immigration or, or in, John, in Trump's case, lying about almost anything from, from his own financial acumen to, to, you know, observable events that he will simply deny have even, he said, didn't he, about a year ago, don't believe what you see and read, just believe what I tell you. And Or- Orwell got there first in almost verbatim uh, standards. So for that model of leadership, explaining or apologizing is kryptonite but it's a despicable and deeply dangerous model as, a, as, as we are discovering and people like it because it it gives license to their worst impulses so I, I was supremely unsurprised by the sort of Trump resurgence because he, he I think the line actually even more so than the than the tape that the Access Hollywood tape the line that sums him up best that self-knowledge that weird mixture of ignorance and epic understanding that he represents was the Fifth Avenue line, the line about being able to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose a single vote, because possibly you need to be base to understand people's basest instincts. You need to be almost completely base. And he knows what that feels like to be given license to be racist again, to be disgusting about women or Mexicans or migrants or Muslims or whatever it may be to lie about Barack Obama's origins of his birth when you give other people the license to indulge their most base instincts, they, they owe you an immense debt of gratitude and loyalty. And the loyalty, of course, is blind. And I think that's what Trump understands better than almost anyone. I wanted to just pick up on a few other things in the, you know, the personal bits of the book, because it's so, I mean, apart from anything else, it's so honest. You, you published those two letters that you wrote to your yeah. prep school head teacher prep school and, and uh, public school uh, housemaster. housemaster. Yeah, and they're very raw. It's painful stuff. Um, and, it, and it touched on that thing that you were saying. It's this tension, and you're very honest about it. It's both a very privileged education, and it's kind of horrific. I mean, it's not, not the most extreme form of abuse, let's be clear, but it, but it was abusive. And that's a hard circle to square. Um, and and you, you come back to it throughout the book, in a way, and, and when you're discussing with callers about your white privilege and what you represent as a privately educated, media-successful white man, and yet at the same time, that that same privilege produced those two letters. Yeah, how do you square that circle? Well, I didn't for a long time. Yeah. And, and the thing I struggled with most in, in therapy, my therapist thought it would be my adoption. I was, I was adopted at 28 days, but unless there's some epic bolus of trauma that I've buried so deep, you never got close to it. My mum and dad got adoption about as right as you could possibly hope to get it because I don't have any abandonment. There's an interesting chapter about marriage, which turns out did have a lot. My attitudes to marriage had a lot to do with being adopted, but, but that's not relevant to this, to this question. I carried my gratitude. I, I don't come from a wealthy background. My dad grew up above a pub in Leeds. He ended up on the Daily Telegraph. And as a Catholic who'd seen, who'd ended up in a very public school environment, this was back when national newspapers still had a lot of people from my dad's background, but very few of them, there was a ceiling past which very few of them would would move mm. and I think he's not with us anymore so I've never been able to pin him down precisely on this I think he sent me to that school Ampleforth knowing or hoping that it would give me a golden ticket that he felt he never had himself it, it had mm. a Yorkshire accent and you know he was as bright as a button but he didn't even have an O level to his name so I arrived at school particularly at Ampleforth more so than prep school because that was just up the road from home Ampleforth is 250 miles away, carrying this huge burden, which at 13 I didn't even know I had, of of privilege, but more so of luck and gratitude and knowing the sacrifices mum and dad were making. 
most lads, most people, boys and girls who went to public school are there because their parents have made sacrifices. It might sound an odd word to use. They're not going without food, but they are going without holidays, fancy holidays, say, or, or new cars and things that our friends who didn't send their children to fee-paying schools would have. And you'd be very conscious of that as a child, much more conscious now. But, but I, I, it, it, there's, a, there's a contradiction in feeling awful and feeling lucky. And one of them has to be buried. And you can't bury feeling lucky because you go home every holiday and you, you see your friends from your junior schools who didn't go to schools like yours. And, and you know that they don't have access to the things that you have access to and they don't meet the people that you meet. But more so, you'd go home and you'd know that you were lucky. And for me to admit to being unhappy or, or, or lonely sporadically would be somehow to in my little teenage mind would have been, I see now, to denigrate what mum and dad had given me and the sacrifice and also the amount of power that they had imbued my education with. It re represent. I think, I think that it was for mum and dad the most resounding evidence of their success. The fact mm -hmm. that they'd sent me to this school, which was a million miles away from what they could ever have dreamt of as teenagers and they got their boy in to it and they could afford to pay the fees just about and so that one of them had to be buried either the sense of luck and gratitude or the sense of being brutalized by grown men and if you admitted that that was what was happening it would be very hard to sustain the senses of luck and gratitude so i chose and most boys who went through similar chose to bury the brutalization and to deny it and in the worst cases because both of my schools have had appalling sexual abuse scandals and 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 teachers have been jailed in the worst cases they, they sought to rationalize that kind of abuse and, and I mentioned one chap in the book who, who I wasn't at school with but who was abused by Christian brothers at a school in Ireland and insists to this day that it didn't do him any harm and that's the perfect proof of having to choose between either denying that you were lucky and privileged or denying that you were brutalized and lonely and, and, and that's, I think that's how we end up in that situation. And yet, because the book does also describe your professional journey from a, you yeah. know, a, a certain kind of sort of combative mm. interviewer and presenter to a different kind now, more open in some ways. And to start with, you were almost then doing the third thing, which was denying that you were lucky because, you know, you'd, you'd made it on your own merits. And it was, you know, it was it was your ability to kind of take people on and you know, yeah. adopt these positions and take them to the nth degree. Yeah. It was it's a kind of arrogance, you'll admit it, right, early on. Oh, for but, sure. But, there's, you know, you were driven by this sense that you're just fighting for it all the way. Yeah. And that's the other thing then, then you describe in the book having to kind of reconcile yourself to because you, know, you had that exchange with a caller who's telling you, you know, there are too many people like you on LBC, privileged white men, and, and you've got to face up to that too. It's it's yeah. There's a lot going on. Right? There's a hell of a lot going on. My favourite chapter is probably the white privilege chapter because I play such a small part in it. It's it's very much Emma in Kensal Rise who rang in again the other day on a completely different subject, actually. And I hadn't thought about it that way around, but... I'm trying to also understand, this is the difference between arrogant old me and, and hopefully slightly more contemplative, but still quite arrogant <laughs> new me, is, is that if I see somebody white on the telly claiming that white privilege doesn't exist and they come from a background like mine, in, in the olden days, I'd have reached for the sledgehammer and I just would have obliterated them with evidence. But I'm more interested now in understanding how you can end up in that position. And to understand how someone else can end up in that position, you have to almost imagine yourself in it which is a sort of mixture of imagination and empathy. Mm. And I, I understand why people have got a problem with being told that they have white privilege. And few people have more privileges than people like me. So imagine if your life wasn't close to everything you'd ever dreamt of. Imagine if you weren't secure and happy and loved and loving and, and, and your dreams had come true with regard to parenthood. To tell that person that they're privileged because they're white is an incredibly um, difficult pill for them to swallow and quite rightly so I tried to understand why I bridled and it's because you do we all struggle well almost all of us struggle at some point I was selling suits years after I thought my journalism career would have started I was still doing my student job and I would lie awake at night and I would drink too much and I would do all of the things that you do when your life isn't going well and yet I was so obviously privileged so it's not about being 
privileged in an objective sense. It's simply about one element of struggle that you don't have in your life. You know, you're never going to get stopped 10 times in a year because of your uh, perceived criminality because of your skin. It's just not going to happen to me. But that doesn't mean that I could have ended up working in a shop for the rest of my life. Nothing wrong with working in a shop, but it wasn't my dream. So it was just, and then the Channel 4 pilot from 100 years ago when the message came back from the commissioning editor, we, we really like James, but does he come in black? And I thought that was evidence of, I suppose if I was a bit thick, I'd think that was evidence of racism. Or, or if I was a bit stuck, actually, is fairer than thick. If I was a bit stuck and incapable of changing my mind, changing my worldview, I'd think, well, that's discrimination against me for being white. But it, it's an attempt to redress stuff that's baked into our society. And so, so yeah, that, that, that was a real lesson and one that I thought I'd already learned. It was in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder that that call came in. And I was patting myself on the back for being a, a clear-eyed ally of Black Lives Matter. And, and it turned out actually that I was in denial about white privilege as well. But you need to understand it's just one element of struggle that you don't have to deal with when you're white. It's not suggesting for a minute that there is no struggle. And that's that I think has been lost in translation. There's another question about education. You don't really touch on this in the book. So the focus is on, you know, what happened to you um, to prep school, public school. You went to the LSE, right? Is that yes. right? Yeah. And when people look at the, the Tory government, there's a, you know, these old Etonians, whatever, what, what the hell do they understand about the rest of us? But there's this other huge education divide in British society, which is university graduates, non-university graduates. And you, you make the point about, you know, being able to empathise, being able to see the world from someone else's perspective. And I, I increasingly think there's a real issue in you know, representative democracy in countries like ours with the fact that, and you mentioned your dad, you know, he got into journalism, but he didn't go to university. And, and that was, you know, the, the, those pathways used to be open and they're not anymore. You know, a university degree is an entry requirement for lots of professions, including now politics. So the House of Commons is stuffed full of university graduates. And yet when you look at the Brexit vote, whether or not you went to university was the biggest single determinant along with age, but a much bigger factor than income, class, gender, even party affiliation. Yes. So what's your feeling about that? Because I, I do increasingly sense that it's a big problem with our politics. Yeah. If it is true that there's a gulf now that's opened up in people's political understanding, sense of identity, whatever, between the graduates and the non-graduates. Mm. The House of Commons is no longer a representative institution. I, I, you don't you don't become a different person by dint of, of no university. You, you know, it doesn't change your DNA. It's very hard to answer this, as you probably fully appreciate, David, without veering <laughs> into slightly choppy waters or sounding precisely like the sort of condescending, sneering, patronising public schoolboy Ramona of yore. But for me, it is about critical thinking, and, and you don't need a degree to understand critical thinking or media studies which you know I used to laugh at along with everybody else of my generation in, in this profession but studying how the media works is something we should probably all do so I'm not sure I agree with you that it is the binary divide between degree and non-degree I think that a university education just encourages you to reach a little bit beyond believing the first thing you're told and possibly school education doesn't. So I'll use as my examples extremely bright tabloid journalists that I've encountered in my career who are very proud of the fact that they didn't go to university. But in my experience, almost to a man and woman, they are the ones that when you bring a little bit of nuance into the conversation, when you try and unpick the headline they've put on their own column, very winningly and very charmingly, they will put their fingers in their ears and start going, la, 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 la. Now, I know how clever they are, and some of them are much more successful on Fleet Street than I ever was. But I, I think that is more relevant. It's, it's that questioning nature. And, and they would be furious to hear me suggest that they don't have the ability to question, partly through deference, partly perhaps through um, a, a, an educational deficit, but I don't think you need to go to university to, to ask questions. I just worry that our media has created an environment in which too many people have stopped asking questions. So where you perhaps would blame the gulf between the degree and the non-degree, I, I would blame 
probably the, 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 the dominance of very, very biased right-wing media doing the bidding of its owners as opposed to mm. the bidding or, or, or acting in the interests of its readers. But I do think there is, I mean, it is a difficult subject. I'm talking to you from my office in Cambridge University, uh, one of the most Romani towns in the UK, <laughs> but also one of the most Corbynite. I mean, it, you know, absolutely this town swung behind yeah. Corbyn. And, you know, Corbyn, Corbyn's Labour Party was the party for, for all its rhetoric of the graduate classes. It was... Um, graduate classes, I'd say. The, okay, the under, the under, <laughs> yeah, true, <laughs> the undergraduate classes. But there's... You know, there is a tribalism in that divide as well, I think. Um, it's it's a much harder one to unpick, just as the age divide is too. So if age and education were yeah. the two divides that we saw, they opened up around Trump. So Trump, again, there is a lot of evidence in the 2020 presidential election that education is a bigger divider even than race on some issues. So this question about, you know, why did the Latino vote yeah. split? It's split on educational lines. So there's something going on about the college-university tribe versus you know and as trump famously said i he said i love the you know the less the less educated <laughs> there's something tribal even in education now as a sort of marker of political because corbynism i really felt it in this town so remain was absolutely dominant and tribal yes but my god you know this was a liberal democrat town and then corbyn came along and suddenly it's rock solid labor I mean, who knows where it'll go from here, but... Well, of course, it doesn't surprise me for a minute, that. And, and again, you're, you're leading me into sort of becoming my own stereotype. But I, I think we make a mistake when we talk about education of thinking that it equates to knowledge. Mm -hmm. that, that when you say someone is less educated than, than you, you, you imply that they know less than you, which isn't actually the case. I mean, you go back to the Latin and the, the, the literal translation of the word, and it's more about how you think, how you approach knowledge. So I hope this isn't too crass, but if someone runs into a crowded theatre and shouts fire, there's nothing stupid, thick, or certainly not racist, about running for the fire exit without a second glance. And, and that, to me, is uneducated, because the educated people will know that last week someone ran into a theatre and shouted fire, and there was no fire. So they will look over their shoulder and they will perhaps try and pick up a scent of smoke. So, so they're not cleverer. They don't have more knowledge. They're just thinking in a different way. And that thinking might be based on experience rather than knowledge. So going to university, doing A-levels gives you experiences. Knowledge in the sense of just being able to learn stuff by rote is, is not going to make you more intelligent, more thoughtful or more right. But thinking that somebody shouting fire in a crowded room, which for me explains Brexit. Someone shouted fire, 52% of the country ran for the door. To use your breakdown, which is completely accurate of the degree um, relevance, the people who were more likely to vote remain are the people that thought that perhaps Brexit campaigners weren't telling them the truth. So I worry that we equate or conflate education with knowledge and, and then experience comes into it, which I think leads us back to Cambridge because I, I, I've had more trouble from Jeremy Corbyn's most committed acolytes than I have from anybody else, including, you know, full on far right uh, Nazis effectively. And I think that was down to experience. And this is gonna upset older Corbyn supporters for whom I have nothing but respect and affection, but undergraduate Corbyn supporters thought that there was something new in what he was offering. They thought there was something unprecedented. They'd become so used to the slick politician, whether Tony Blair or David Cameron, they'd become so used to the, to the smoothie that there, there seemed to be an authenticity to him. But actually, the more experience you had, the less authentic I think Corbyn would appear to be. And so that's how you could have a city which is simultaneously rabidly pro-Remain and rabidly pro-Corbyn, despite the fact that history will probably record that the main reason why Brexit didn't at least get challenged between 2016 and 2020 was Jeremy Corbyn. And yeah, I don't want to get fixed on this, but that, that experience thing then runs up against the fact that it's not clear whether it's age or education that's driving this, because obviously people over the age of 65 overwhelmingly voted leave, and very, very few people over the age of 65 went to university. And yeah. it's not clear what's the primary well, factor. Then. 40 years of being told that the European Union is the enemy at the gates. It's 40 years of being right. told that wishes harm. It's 40 years of, of reading of about the wrong kind of experience. 
or the fourth Reich. So that would be experience. Mm. And, and again, it's false. But if you even at the beginning of that four decade journey, you might have been trying to smell the smoke, checking over your shoulder. After 40 years mm. of them yelling fire and someone finally opens the fire escape, of course they're going to pile through it at 100 miles an hour. There are very few sort of interesting social science experiments around Brexit, but one was, I think these are American academics, did a study of Liverpool and Manchester because in Liverpool people didn't read the sun and the difference that that made. So yeah. a town that for totally different reasons became a mirror reading town. Yes. Um, and it did, it genuinely did. You know, there is evidence that <clears throat> that really did make a difference over those 30, you know, the years since Hillsborough, it's a long time. Yeah. Um, you take the sun out, out of a city and you do get a different electoral outcome 30 years later. Incredible. So there it? is evidence for it. Yes, I know there is. It's trust, um, I think. It's, yeah. it's, why would you not trust what is in your newspaper? You know, it was only in 1969 that Murdoch bought the sun. So, so the age demographics that you're discussing become doubly pertinent. Mm. And, and newspapers didn't lie to us blatantly prior to that moment in British history. So you have a generation of people who have been lied to blatantly by the right-wing media, but they stay... I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's the early precursor to social media the more real it looks the more authentic it looks on a facebook page the more it is presented like breitbart for example presents itself it looks to all intents and purposes like a reliable trusted news source and then you end up with with some of the madness that's going on on now i think i'd never thought of this before but because post murdoch newspapers looked like they did before you'd have you know the, the murdoch's son looked like hugh cublip's mirror had the same color masthead it looked the same so it never really crossed their mind that it was embarked upon oh just to use climate science as the most obvious example it was embarked upon an editorial line that that, that, that could kill its readers or at least their children talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So there's a chapter in the book where you, you reflect on the McCanns and their experience in 2007 as a kind of harbinger of, so, so you know, it's 69 maybe changed everything when yes. Murdoch acquired a tabloid. There is a view that, I think there's a book called this, that 2007 was the year that changed the world because 2007 was the year that the iPhone was invented. It was the year that Twitter was invented. But I hadn't made the connection until I read this. There was something about the McCann experience, the horror of that, yeah. And what it revealed about people's willingness, given the opportunity just to jump in about something they could know nothing with the yeah. most moralizing and judgmental attitudes possible to have Absolutely. and cruel. I mean, the cruelty of it. Yeah. What do you reflect on when you think of them? Because it was it was early in this story. So Twitter didn't exist really in 2007. Wow. Weirdly, in 2007, very few people had iPhones because they'd just been launched by Steve Jobs. But the McCann's showed us something that was coming down the pipe their experience, that, that horrific experience. Yes, I'm, it's the first time I'm going to come away from an interview with a reading list of this, David. It really is. But that's, that's fascinating. Uh, so someone wrote a book called 2007, The Year That Changed the World. I, 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 uh, I can't remember who it was. So what it did, and, and where the McCanns would be, you know, canaries down this particular coal mine, w w would be that link, wouldn't it, between what looks reliable and what looks authentic. And I've had this week, a few calls from people who genuinely believe that Bill Gates is going to use vaccines to inject them with secret microchips, which will be used to control the population, which we can laugh at. But when you're taking call after call after call after call, you have to ask, where, where does this come from? And the idea is that for whatever reason they want to believe something, that that's, that's psychology I'm not qualified to comment on, but we can agree that these people whether it's people accusing Kate and Jerry McCann of having murdered their own daughter, or whether it's people that think Bill Gates is going to inject them with a nano um, chip, they clearly want to believe it. And that desire to believe something, regardless of evidence, probably does actually change in 2007. And with the evolution then of both social media as a platform and technology as a, 
as a way of accessing, as a portal to that platform. Because I suspect it's, I mean, we had the moon landings, don't forget, and we had 9-11. So there's nothing new about conspiracy theories. And, and YouTube probably is bigger than Twitter or Facebook on, on, on these rabbit holes and these algorithms. But I suspect if we leave for the moment the question of why you want to believe X, which is untrue, objectively untrue, but you want to believe it, it's probably easier to find proof that what you believe is true than at any other point. Well, in fact, it is, isn't yeah. it? It just is easier than at any other point in human history. And and the McCann story in, fascinates me. It was the first time as a phone-in host, which you know a lot of people still are a bit sniffy about. For my money, it's the purest form of journalism because you speak daily to people with incredibly diverse lived experience and strong opinions. And it broke my heart. It, it broke my heart to, to hear people putting the boot into these parents who were going through, I thought, objectively going through hell. And then the more you looked at the evidence and the more you examined the stories, the more you saw how easy it would be for these people to shore up their prejudice. So what was the prejudice built on? The prejudice was built on a, an utterly comprehensible and profoundly sympathetic desire to believe that it couldn't happen to them. Mm. So the more I dug into it and the more I thought about it and the more I sought to exercise empathy, the more I realised that if they could blame it on the parents, it would reassure them that, that dumb luck, the fickle finger of fate, tragedy, couldn't visit them unprompted, unheralded or unwanted. There must be a causal relationship between that nightmare, the worst nightmare for, for many people, imaginable. There must be a causal relationship there rather than it just being the universe's fundamentally random nature and the existence of people who will do evil things. So they ended up abusing Kate and Jerry McCann in the worst imaginable way because somewhere deep inside, they were trying to convince themselves that it couldn't happen to them. And that was a breakthrough because that was empathy squared plus sympathy equals understanding of people doing what are objectively disgusting things. That's, that's why I was glad I got it in the book. But then it, 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 it's become a cliche that we're living in an age where conspiracy theories are spreading. And like you say, so there's, you know, there's a lot around vaccines mm. now. It's a real challenge to know how to engage with the conspiracy theories. I think we all know that, you know, yes. it's, it, that can be a nightmare in itself because, yes. you know, you, everything you do proves that you're part of the conspiracy. So how do you do it? What do you say? How, where does the empathy take you? Because conspiracy theories are often driven by a sense of fear or lack of empowerment. So what do you do? And two things, and I'm not claiming for a minute to have the, the, the definitive answer to these questions, but what works for me as someone who perhaps could come into contact with, with, with more um, victims of this kind of uh, phenomenon than, than, than almost anyone else, actually, I, I don't put people on for sport. So if you think there's a link, I did when I started out, but there's nothing to be gained from putting on air someone who thinks that coronavirus is a hoax because that conversation, even if it ended with me convincing them that it wasn't, which is highly unlikely, mm. all it does is inflate the lie, inflate the misconception, inflate, inflate the untruth. But I did put on people, as I say, who believed that they were going to be injected by Bill Gates. The distinction there is I, I can get, I can see the way in to the second conversation. And, and it's always, and this is the second part of my answer to your question, it's always about remembering the difference between why and what. This is in many ways what my first book was about because we, we, we're obsessed with the what now. And do you know what? This goes back to your um, university observation, the, the, the degree paradigm, because up until A-level or O-level or GCSE, you, you get your grades by doing the what of it. You get your grades by describing what, who, why, what, where, when. Well, not why, who, what, where, when. Um, when you get to degree level, arguably, and I'm being a bit glib, you start asking why. And as a phone-in host, um, I listened to other people who were very good at the craft, and I realised after about five or six years of doing it, and I wasn't bad at it, and I enjoyed it, but it didn't feel magical to me, and I always... Um, thought I'd go off and do something else until I made these breakthroughs and discoveries. Because as soon as you started asking people why, or even what they meant by the words that they use, a lot of the most strongly held, furiously held, actually, opinions would, would fall apart. So 
an obvious example would be political correctness. Ask people what that means, and they don't know. They just know that they're supposed to hate it. And the more you ask them what it meant, the more they realise that there was nothing there there to hate. So, so with conspiracy theories, I find the why of it. So yesterday, why does Bill Gates want to control you? And they didn't have a clue. And they'd come out with these meaningless phrases like population control, which is a phrase that has been used in the context of Bill Gates because he's trying to massively reduce infant mortality rates, which you could describe technically as a form of population control. But in the minds of whoever it is that's misled these people, that means he actually wants to reduce the whole population of the planet so that the rich people can have even more money than they have now. So you say, why would Bill Gates want to do that if he's already given away a huge proportion of his fortune why is he now seeking to kill you to get richer while also giving away much so if you go in on the why of it that i think has to be always has been always will be the way that you deal with it qui bono i mean crikey you know it's, it's there again the classicists got got there for who benefits from this who benefits from injecting people with who benefits from Obama's been on this and came up with the phrase truth decay which i heard for the first time on monday and he's that's just beautiful because who benefits from the idea that Hillary Clinton is running a paedophile ring from the basement of a pizza restaurant in, in New York? Ultimately, if you keep asking why, then it should all fall apart. But because we're obsessed with the what, and because you get the clicks and you get the likes and you get the engagements by boldly stating the Queen is a lizard, Bill Gates wants to inject you with a nanotech, the European Union is your enemy. If you don't introduce a why to that, and this is a failure of journalism more than politics. If you don't introduce a why to any of that, it's halfway around the world before, to coin a phrase, before the truth has got its trousers on. Presumably with Bill Gates, it also has something to do with the fact that, you know, we do live in a world, I mean, Bezos, I think, is, is a more obvious yes. case, not least because he's not giving his money away. He's funneling it into some crazy space project. I, mean, I think there's an understandable kind of suspicion around... wealth on that scale I think it's I find it really hard to what does it you know what does it mean so people try and attach meaning to it and I think in the Bill Gates case it is very helpful to be able to say as with you know Warren Buffett they've given a a lot of it away I look at Jeff Bezos I think I'm susceptible to believing that he might have some evil schemes up his sleeve you see the one you haven't mentioned for me is the one that proves or the closest I ever get to being a conspiracy theorist is is George Soros so George Soros is also elected to spend a huge portions of his fortune on what he considers to be altruistic projects. In fact, I would say are objectively altruistic mm. projects. So you've got Bill Gates and George Soros, to a lesser extent Buffett, because I don't think he's as political, but he has mm. he's to charity rather than I think to his own. Yeah. But Soros and Gates, yeah. two of the richest men on the planet, both showing that the richest men on the planet can spend their money to help poor people. In Gates's case, some of the poorest people um, in, in the world. In, in Soros's case, some of the most poorly served people, politically speaking. So where did the seed get sown that Gates and Soros, leaving aside anti-Semitism, just, just for the purposes of this example, where did the seed get sown that Gates and Soros were up to no good? Whose interests would that serve? And then there's the names of the billionaires that are not in common parlance, that don't trip off our tongues quite as easily, but who do turn out to have funded fossil fuel think tanks or funded dodgy, very, very racist media. Or And it is in these corners of our society that a lot of the anti-Soros, anti-Gates, particularly Soros stuff has grown up. So I don't, I, I mean, it seems plausible to me that if I was a billionaire devoid of empathy, devoid of conscience, dedicated solely to accruing ever more money and power, possibly by buying a a television station, possibly by um, trying to deny that that fossil fuels are killing the planet, then who would be my kryptonite answer? Men who are just as rich as me, who are using their money for good. And lo and behold, in the year 2020, George Soros and Bill Gates, in the minds of many, are public enemies number one and number two, whereas the men who own the media outlets, the television stations, they're never really examined in the same way. They're never scrutinised. They're certainly never held up to the same standards of behaviour. And I find it unlikely that that's a coincidence. Is the trouble with the phrase conspiracy theorist? Because you, you hedge that by saying this is 
Well, look, some conspiracies are true. I haven't no. said anything that's not true. Gates and Soros are demonised on a scale. Yeah. No, no, it's... it's, yeah. to it's yours is not a theory. Yours is just a, no a description of the world that we live in. Yeah. And look at who set up Breitbart. Look at who bankrolls mm. people like Steve Bannon. And, and it, I mean, it, it, it isn't a coincidence, I don't think. So we, we haven't got a lot long left. And I do want to ask you a bit about what's going on as you mentioned sort of today and I, and I was thinking it does connect with the theme of your book therapy I mean therapy for the Labour Party with Corbyn <laughs> <laughs> you know he's so Starmer has um denied him the whip but he's he's back as a member I I, I mean I have to say the internal workings of Labour disciplinary mm. processes which I know are the story here but they also you know I'm not alone in just wanting it oh, to, go, sure. to go away but, um what's your sense of it now Labour. I mean, Starmer, as you say, he's he's both done something quite brave and also something which is a bit of a dance. I think um, does does the you know does the Labour Party need to to use a horrible phrase move on from the Corbyn years around this issue or indeed any other issue or does the Labour Party need to do what it seems to be doing, which is sort of fudge it a bit and hope that its coalition holds. You know, together. I don't agree with you. I, I mean, it might be the Byzantine nature of the Labour Party constitution, but the NEC reinstated Jeremy Corbyn as a member of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer has no influence or say over that. And, and what he does have control over is the question of whether or not Corbyn is allowed to rejoin the parliamentary Labour Party. So, so I, I don't agree that it's a dance. I think Starmer has exercised power um, uh, uh, up to precisely the, the the limit of the power that he has, he, he, the the NEC he can't chuck people out of the party. He can deny him and his chief whip can deny people the whip, and that's what he's done. So for my money, it's quite bold, and it is proper leadership, and and it is also necessary because it's pretty straightforward. You know, the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission, a, a Labour designed and a Labour invented institution found that the, the, the law had been broken in the context of anti-Semitism during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Now, his most slavish supporters deny it to this day. They claim that it's a confection. They claim that it's a smear campaign. They claim that the moon is made of cheese. And Jeremy Corbyn indulges them, whether you know, you're comfortable with this simple truth or not. When he writes in immediate response to the report that it had been exaggerated to, to harm Labour, he is doing precisely what um, the report had found he'd done and simultaneously denying it. So it's just as Trumpish in its way as tossing a coin, shouting heads and tails, and then claiming victory which, whichever way round it lands. So when Starmer said there's no room in the Labour Party for this sort of prevarication, for this sort of equivocation, I didn't know if he'd follow through on it. And I really hoped he would, because I think that if if the ghost of Corbyn can hang around without, if he makes a full apology, I'm not sure any of us will ever know whether it's sincere or not. But at least if he made it, then the transparency of the situation is is, is undeniable. Starmer has laid down the law and Corbyn has obeyed that law. At the moment, he's not obeying it. So I'm I'm hugely encouraged, I think that Starmer is doing what he's doing. We'll see what happens next. But it also spikes. I mean, the only two punches Johnson's landed on Starmer since he became leader were the continuing association with the last leader, which a reinstatement in the parliamentary party would have re-weaponized, re revivified on a, on a huge, huge scale. And then this other thing, which he did again today, which is every time Starmer criticizes something the government has done in the context of, say, health, they try and turn it into a criticism of the health service. So if, if Starmer has removed one, two fundamentally dishonest lines of attack that Boris Johnson has against him, if he's removed one of them, while the other one is so obviously not going to stand up to evidential scrutiny, I, I, I would say that's anything but a dance. I think I, maybe it's been so long since we saw it that I'm getting a little bit over optimistic. It feels to me like strong leadership. It really does at this point. By the time this goes out, of course, it might have all fallen apart like a cheap suit and he'll be back on the Labour benches. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I doubt it. Um, <laughs> let's do Brexit to finish. So we're, who knows, a couple of weeks away from knowing something more about the thing yeah. that never we never fully get to understand. I don't know what you feel about this, but I, I, I have thought a long time that Dominic Cummings is the architect of Brexit and he's... You know, this wasn't strong leadership. Well, it was strong leadership by Carrie Simons, but he's gone. What do you feel about the, that that line that many people are taking now, which is no one's 
no one's left to take responsibility for this. Thing. Right. Um, I mean, Johnson is there, but he's not going to take responsibility for anything. It, 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 it's it's sort of folded back because of the general election. It's kind of folded back into mainstream parliamentary politics in a way. We had an election that you know, yeah. gave a kind of answer, but it also meant that there's almost no one now who sort of, you know, has bloody hands anymore. Uh, well, I, I mean, I suppose you could say, well, who, who's going to take the credit if it all goes well? But I'm not sure many of us entertain that, that notion for, for longer than a nanosecond. It, 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 in some ways, it was inevitable. In, in other ways, if it made me very sad last week when Cummings walked the plank for the reason that you highlight. So you, you're torn between celebrating that he can no longer influence events because his influence is clearly malign in, in almost every imaginable way. But equally, as you say, who's carrying this can? I mean, there is a can there, an, an epic generation-spanning can of unnecessary harm, which is currently being carried by nobody. Michael Gove, I suppose, becomes the... I mean, there's a lot of people in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who I don't think are, are, are going to shrug off responsibility, even if they hit the road, which is unlikely. But you've got Rees Mogg, you've got Duncan Smith, you've got all the ludicrous... ERG people. What I don't know, and, and what I will have to work out my own answer to when the when the world turns at the end of the year, is what purpose is served by pointing out how wrong they were. I mean, I, I've promised my listeners that I'll put £10 in a charity tin every single time I say the words I told you so in the context of Brexit. And I mean it. I mean, it's fun and it's a bit of theatre. But how long can you say I tell my theatre up until October 2019 was, if we didn't hold these people who have so obviously misled the British public to account, then they will rise further. And God knows what will be the thing they're in charge of next. I said this on my radio show a million times, and it turned out the thing they were in charge of next was the response to a lethal global pandemic. And it is probably the least surprised person in the country that, that our response to it has been among the worst in the world because a platform, a project, a building that is erected on lies, on exaggerations, on xenophobia, on nonsense, will always fall apart. The question was only how many people are going to get caught up in the, in the, in the, in the, in the aftermath of it falling apart. And we still don't know the answer to that question. So I, I don't know. You know, do you point out it's already failed to deliver on almost every promise that was made. It, you know, the money for the NHS, the frictionless trade, the, the, the removal of red tape, every single thing, even the fish. You now have members, senior members of the fishing industry saying, well, it doesn't matter how much we catch, if we can't sell it into continental Europe because that's by far our biggest market, the blue passports, which I used to joke about. All that will be left is blue passports and fish. It turns out even that's not true. We could have had a blue passport all along and... Fish is not going to be, I mean, it's still the sticking point in negotiations because it's become such an emotive issue. But as an industry, I think it contributes less to GDP than Harrods does. So I, I, I don't know is the short answer to your question. What, what do we do as the evidence? Someone has to be held accountable for it. Boris Johnson's in power probably for another four years, at least his party is. There's no one in that cabinet that didn't either campaign to leave the European Union or abandon the knowledge that leaving the European Union was a bad idea for reasons of professional advancement. So there are still plenty of people there we can point the finger at, but the point of pointing the finger is something I'm not clear on yet. And what one of the oddities, because the, you know, the, the event that sort of interceded was the 2019 general election where the, the British people under our slightly weird system yes. were given a choice and, and the answer came back under our slightly weird system that they went one way. And so you got a raft of Tory MPs elected who were not themselves responsible for Brexit in the sense that, you know, some of them are quite young and some of them are relatively new to politics. They stood on a platform which was not, you know, we promised you this, so we're going to deliver it. We, they stood on a platform which was the British people chose this thing. And so we're, so their commitment is not in a sense to delivering a good Brexit, it's to honouring the result of the referendum. Yes. And that's, that's the backbenches of the Tory party. You know, that whole generation of Northern Conservative MPs Yes. And it's a it's a sort of odd new dynamic, and Johnson's got a, got problems with them too, um, because they want the levelling up agenda and all the rest of it. And, and they've so, they've got problems from our foreign aid this week as well, which yeah. 
took me by surprise a little bit because I, I haven't studied them closely and it's probably unfair to lump them all in as some sort of homogenous group even if they have set up, they are <laughs> if they have set up a, nor, a northern research group but again I, I I mean it's all very well campaigning to deliver something I always use the example of a box with a picture of a toaster on the side and th 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 everyone voted for a toaster so we've got to give them a box with a picture of the toaster on the side but whatever you do don't open that box and so I don't feel as warm or as forgiving as you do to, to, to the new generation of backbench conservative MPs because the, the first thing they should have done before deciding on whether or not to campaign on a platform that promised to deliver a box with a picture of a toaster on the side was have a look inside the bloody box and find out if there was a toaster in it. And there clearly isn't. And that's the discovery that the British public is set to make for the ones that haven't already. I think the new polling is astonishing on uh, people for whom the penny has already dropped. They sold us a box with a picture of a toaster on the side, and they told us it contained the finest toaster in the history of toasters. It's actually empty, or it contains a couple of bricks. And people fresh arrived in Parliament on the Conservative benches, they elected to be part of that process. So although they don't bear responsibility for the first half of the con, which would be June 2016, the second half of the con, which is December 2019, is on them. And... Um, I'm not, again, I don't know how you go about the business of making sure they're not allowed to either forget that or, or almost abandon it or deny it. But I, I well, that's why I get excited when I go to work every morning because I'm never quite sure which way things are going to go next. Uh, warm and forgiving weren't the two things I was trying to do. But... Well, yeah, I, all right. No, 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 no. I wouldn't ask you because we've got a couple of minutes. I'll ask you one last question about what's in that box with the toaster because the other thing that looks like it's in that box is the end of the union. I mean, it's increasingly. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you a question with two minutes to answer it. It's, it's, it's maybe the big question, the looming question of British politics over the next couple of years. We've got the Hollywood elections in May and then no question we'll be moving to a big fight over a Scottish independence referendum. The polling on that, again, has significant, I mean, it's really moved. Whatever yeah. we think about polls, that, that you, those numbers don't move to that scale without reflecting something. Um, yes. Johnson may be presiding over that too. Um, yeah. what's your gut instinct about Well, that? if you allow me a moment of smugness, it's, it's yet more evidence of how important it was to hold these people to account before they got their hands on other steering wheels, in, in this case, a steering wheel of the entire United Kingdom. So if it's built upon lies, if it's built upon nonsense, and you don't call it out, they, they never retire and go home. So the union breaking would have been something I expected. The coronavirus obviously wasn't, but they're, they're symptoms of the same malaise. They're symptoms of the same disease, putting people in power who've already misled us. And the problem is this. I don't know whether this will surprise you or not, but it surprised me. The problem is that, well, two things. I can't look a Scottish person in the eye at the moment as a huge believer in the union. And for me, Scotland is part of my home. And I, that upset some uh, Scottish independent campaigners because they think it makes me sound a bit twee and a bit cosy a bit shortbread tin I think is the phrase that they use but it really doesn't you know I, I one of my daughters is desperate to go to university in Scotland and she wouldn't feel by any stretch of the imagination that that would have involved going to a foreign country you know but I couldn't look a Scottish person in the eye with Boris Johnson in Downing Street and Brexit being inflicted upon a population that voted 62% against it and say, you've got to stay in bed with us. I just couldn't do it in all conscience and honesty. I might be able to say, I think in 10 years time, you might look back and regret it. But today I cannot look you in the eye and tell you to do it. So yesterday on the show, when we did a lot on this, and you're right, it's huge. Downing Street, terrified of it, or, or, or really terrified of it. But I thought this was a zinger. Right. I'm a huge fan of like the real simple questions that unlock everything. And, and occasionally I stumble across them and I thought I'd got one here. So I said to my callers, OK, then um, here's your choice. You can have independence, but it will involve a hard border across the middle of Great Britain or you can't have independence at all. And I thought, hand on heart, I thought they'd all go, oh, oh mm. all right, then we'll, we'll have to stick with it. We'll have to stick with the union, every single one of them hard border across the middle of Britain. But, you know, if Brexit is half as awful as people like me have persuaded ourselves that it is, that, that feels, oh man, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Absolutely heartbreaking. Take back control by slicing the country into ever smaller pieces. James's book, which is available now, is called How Not To Be Wrong, The Art Of Changing Your Mind. 
You can see the video of the conversation and lots of other really interesting events too at the Cambridge Literary Festival website, which is cambridgeliteraryfestival.com. If you go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com and you're interested in getting some of our merchandise in time for Christmas, we have got new batches to release of our keep cups, of our tote bags. You can find it all there. Next week in our regular episode, we're going to be talking about the politics of youth, race and participation in the American election. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.